You're listening to The Tech Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Sue Nelson and for the next hour we're going to be talking about all things tech. I'm joined by my fellow presenter today who is Ross Shaw of Global Tech Advocates. Hello. Hello. How, How are you? Doing? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm Me good. too. Mm, we've got some good guests as well, Russ. We so, yeah, well, we all, always got good guests, obviously. But um, I'm welcoming welcoming to the studio today Bernadine Brocker from Vastari. Thanks for yep. joining us. Bernadine. Thanks for having me. Mustafa El Syed from Automated Technologies. Automata hey. Technologies. Automata. That's it. Good. Hey. Yeah, technologies. <laughs> I'll get it right eventually. And uh, James Gupta of My Labs. Hey. Got that right, James uh, and Gupta and my labs. Got that right. Sign up. Sign up. Yeah, okay. Sign up. <laughs> um, Bernadine, I just want to talk to you first. So you you were uh, your working company called Vastari, Vastari.com. Um, now I know that Vastari is in reference to Giorgio Vasari, uh, who was around in the sixteenth century. Tell me I know this is a tech programme, but stick with it, everybody. Um, tell me about Giorgio Vasari and who that was. Yes, sure. So Giorgio Vasari um, wrote a, quite an important book in the 16th century called The Lives of the Artists. And um, he ta- talked about the artists not in a way that was necessarily um, pedantic. It was more anecdotal and people really got to know them. And as a result of his book, which he also wrote in the vernacular Italian at the time, uh, people learned to love artists. All of the Ninja Turtles, Donatello, Michelangelo, Leonardo, all of those guys are loved through the ages to the point that they're used in a TV program um, because of this artist who was their contemporary who wrote their stories. So up until then, you'd get all the sort of benefactors of art. And, and I know that there was a big sort of rivalry between Florence and Rome, for example. <clears throat> you know, we've got the best artist here. No, 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 we've got the best artist here. And it was, you know, it's very much a sort of public statement of your wealth and influence. But up until then, nobody had really written about the artists themselves other than seeing their work. So not, not about them as people. Exactly that. So, for example, Raphael uh, passed away while he was in the throes of passion with the baker's daughter. So um, those types of stories make people <laughs> I think there's lots of them. people whose aim that might be. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so really anecdotal. And, and, and in a way, that would make them on a par, you know, with in inverted commas, the normal person, the average person. Yeah, and I think that that's what makes them so valuable 500 years later, that everyone can learn to love them and understand their stories, rather than it just being something for the chosen few. Yeah, and, and some of these characters are amazing, and some of the, the work is astounding. So for anybody that's seen, you know, Michelangelo's David, for example, it's one of the most stunning pieces of human achievement ever I think yeah. and when you think that it's like five or six hundred years ago um, it's just it's just out you know amazing really let alone you know the Sistine Chapel or, or the stuff that Leonardo did um, so these these guys feel like they're unattainable in their brilliance and yet I, I guess in your view Vasari made them human-like yeah made them human but also by making them human made them immortal because everyone, even today, can relate to the stories that were told back then. And were those stories true? <laughs> That's another question. I say anecdotal, because um, some are very much based on gossip. 
Yes, which um, um, nowadays you'd be called out, or, or you know, there'd be a lawsuit or something. So how, I don't how know. true I do mean, you think these stories are? I think I think the idea of using gossip to uh, increase a, a knowledge of a brand is something that still exists today. Mm, yeah, I guess so. Um, Russ, have you got any thoughts on? I mean, if you had a brand that was Michelangelo today, it'd be worth a fortune, wouldn't it? Wow, an absolute fortune. But on this point about gossip, well. We do have gossip today. We have social media. And you look at all the stuff that's going on on social media, Facebook, Twitter, you name it. There's a lot of gossip out there. Some might call it fake news. Is that the human news. condition then? Yeah, I think, think so. I think, it's, I think it's a part of the human condition. It, it, you know, we've been intrigued by gossip over the, over the centuries. And I don't see that going away anytime soon. Mm, probably not. Mm. Um, so, so there's this uh, chap, Giorgio Vasari, uh, writing uh, about these um, you know, figures that we all know. You've got a company called Vastari, which has got a T in it, which isn't Vasari. So explain to me what that's about. Um, so the same mission that Vasari had of um, telling the stories in ways that everyone can understand is what nowadays happens when people go to exhibitions. So you can actually learn about a subject and get to know a certain type of art or science or uh, craft much better because you go to the museum and you learn about it. And it's not for just a select few, it's open to the public. And so what we do is we've built an online marketplace and platform where these exhibitions can be uh, traded around the world. Uh, so an exhibition from London could go to Latvia and more audiences can see it. So explain to me how the exhibition thing works. I mean, I love going to art exhibitions, always have done um, since I was a child because I was lucky enough to be born in London I think my parents didn't have much money and they realised very early on that you could go to exhibitions in those days didn't cost you anything so it's like free entertainment Um, so so you go and see let's say a a famous artist and um, uh, all of this person's work is there how do you get those works of art to the exhibition bearing in mind they're in all sorts of different people's hands across the world and then do you then as an organiser sell that exhibition as you're, as you're saying across so the world? So basically exactly that is what we're focusing on. So firstly there are all these different objects that need to be brought into one space so you need to find who owns them and what we have is a central database that's very secure and very anonymized, where um, the organisers of these exhibitions can speak to the collectors and say can I borrow this pencil used by Leonardo da Vinci for my exhibition. That's not a real example, but anyway. Um, and, uh, and, and then once those shows have been put together, that is actually IP that is owned by the producer, uh, whether that's a museum or an independent curator or whoever it might have it. And that IP is traded. And the reason it is is because, firstly, um, if it's already been shown, you know what attendance figures you can expect and you can start building the business model on like, okay, there are going to be 50,000 people likely to attend. So I need to charge this much for tickets and I can bring it in. Uh, it's less risky than if you start from scratch and you don't know how many visitors you can expect. Okay, so I, um, an exhibition I went to ages ago was Paul Gauguin. I can't remember where it was. I don't At know. the Tate, probably. At the Tate, I think. Um, it did dawn on me that actually I didn't realise what a rubbish artist he was, by the way. I was absolutely dreadful. Um, and I think it's only actually seeing it all in one place, I realised how rubbish he was. And there's about three <laughs> paintings that were really good and that was it. Um, but that aside, it's actually really hard then, isn't it, to contact every person and say, you know that hugely valuable thing you've got hanging in your kitchen, whatever it is, um, I'd like to borrow it for an exhibition. How does that work? Because who then, you know, how does the insurance work? How do you transport it? So um, 
There, there are a lot of things going on there. So firstly, uh, the fact that, say, for example, you own a notebook with uh, notes from Gogam. Yep. So you have it at your home and you don't necessarily want everyone to know that you have it because it increases the risk of all types of things. Yeah, sure. People trying to steal yeah, sure. it, whatever it might be. But if a museum borrows it, it helps add to the value of that piece because ah. artwork is valued by where it's been seen. And um, so actually that's one of the most important practices for a collector is cultivating these relationships with museums so that their artworks appreciate in value. So right now, or before Vastari, the way that it worked was um, you basically had to wine and dine curators, get to know museum directors, hope that they'll borrow your little notebook by Gauguin. Our argument is that uh, it shouldn't be about whining and dining. It should be about finding the most relevant piece and borrowing that. And that's what our database does. And you do borrow it then? You don't, you don't pay for that? No. So because it increases the value of the work, okay. usually the They're collector lends it for free. Yeah. Um, but the museum covers all of the insurance, the shipping, Transportation, those types of... Yeah, uh, yeah. and security cost. of it uh, Obviously. and everything. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you, so it must be... I mean, that's just a huge undertaking... In it, before yes. you even get the exhibition on, isn't it? Getting all those places. <laughs> and, and where do you get your value from this? How do you generate revenues from this part of the whole ecosystem that you're in? Well, it was a really complicated thing because no one's done this before. Mm. So we did it for free for a year. And we discovered that actually the people who want to be in control and who want to uh, manage the uh, whole process are the content owners. They're the ones who want to engage us for a certain amount of time to bring their objects on, on board. And then if they don't want to lend anymore, they want to cancel the contract, they stop paying. So, so can I just go back a step then? So so by the contact owners, what you mean is somebody somebody has an idea and they say, right, I'm going to put on Paul Gauguin Expression. And, and therefore it's their idea and it's their event so um, let's put it like that is that is that how it works um so it's a it's a complicated one because there are so many different people and yeah. everyone wears different hats at different points in time so at one point the uh tate might be a content owner at another point they might right. be a venue hosting sure. the exhibition yeah so I, I say it consciously anyone could be any of those roles at yeah. a certain point in time but basically it's when you have something that you want to market and get someone who wants it. So then that person would take control of that. It's their event. Let's say it's not not a venue. It's it's, it's a person who's doing this. Yeah. Um, and and then they they will organise everybody, get all the you know the, the the paintings or whatever it is, get it all sorted up to the venue, or whatever. And then what you're saying is that they will then want to hopefully it's like a West End run. They want then they want to go to New York for their play or whatever it is. But they want they want to transfer it somewhere exactly. else. Um, and, and and sort of back to Russ's question, well, how did you manage yes. all that then? <laughs> so we basically um, work on an annual membership fee. So we don't want to be... Uh, the, the old model for some of the brokers that existed offline for this was to take a commission off of the hiring fee. And we're actually disrupting that. We don't think that um, it sometimes stops projects from happening because it becomes prohibitively expensive, etc. So we just give you access to our network and work with you for a year on an annual subscription basis and it doesn't matter if it's an exhibition that's worth hundreds of thousands of pounds or five thousand pounds we're equally as enthusiastic about placing it and have you come across anyone i mean i'm assuming many people are embracing your new disruptive model but have you come across anyone who has said hmm 
we're not sure about this. They're, they're taking value away from us. So what are the pros and cons in terms of what you're hearing at street uh, level? I, th I think, um, well, uh, the immediate example is the first blog post that was written when we were uh, set up was, is this the end of the curator? <laughs> and kind of uh, this, this doomsday type of thing. And the truth is, yes, immediately people think this is going to make my job not exist anymore. And the truth is it doesn't. It doesn't replace anyone. It's just a tool to be able to do things better. And quicker. I and quicker, yeah. exactly. And just be more ambitious with your projects because you don't have to spend six months chasing someone down. And um, I, I did have, for example, one collector, a very important collector of photography, tell me, but I love the serendipity of coincidences. And that's what Good I... Good luck with that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. You kind of have to lose a bit of that romanticism. So, so you, in, in essence, you're, you're, you're helping the private collector, mm -hmm. uh, but by them, you know, being visible, if you like, uh, obviously in, in a very secure way. Um, so it means that, that that's helpful to them. But if somebody is managing one of these, you know, exhibitions, um, they've automatically got this, this network that they can tap into. They can, they can tap into the network of collectors and they can tap into the network of venues who want to have content as well for their uh, programming. So it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a network of, on all levels. And, and again, as you said, you, you've also then got up-to-date information about every exhibition almost that's on around the world. Um, if, if it's an internationally touring show, yes. Yes. Wow. wow. That's, that's a really good resource, isn't it? Fantastic. Yeah. That's a good thing, because when I try and find, I never know what's on where. You know, it's well, quite a difficult thing to find. Our problem is I, I, I'm constantly living in the future, because a lot of our projects are three to five years in advance. Yes. So we've made connections for exhibitions that are happening in 2020. So, yes, we do know what's happening, but my brain is a huge muddled... Uh, of ideas yes and are you thinking about how you might share that information in terms of what's coming in three years and building up a community of people who would love to know what's coming to the vna in two years time and who's involved with it yeah i guess it's um it's kind of if you look at it we're at the beginning of the transaction and we're getting closer and closer to the actual event and one of the things that we think is actually missing from the museum world is pre-marketing so the, the way that concerts, you can buy the uh, tickets six months, a year in advance uh, in, in museums, that doesn't happen yet. So um, as exhibitions become more and more popular, like the Pink Floyd show at the V&A and the Basquiat show that just closed at the ba Barbican, people really want to see this stuff. And you should be able to say six months in advance, I want to be in London for that show. And that's surely going to help the venues and, and the organiser in, in that they know what's booked already in advance. And that, and that minimises the risk for the venue because they know it's going, to be, it's going to be popular well before it's put on. And exactly that about um, the ambitions of the show and what you can actually achieve. One of the big problems in museums is cash flow. So being able to have that cash uh, up front yeah. from the pre-sold tickets can actually help people be much more ambitious as well. Mm. So tell us about the, uh, using the Pink Floyd example. I mean, that's a huge um, mishmash of, 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 of things that are on show. How on earth do you get collectors to be involved in well, that? Well, that one was quite easy for them because really? um, most of it came from Nick Mason and the other members of Pink Floyd okay. directly. So they didn't need to do too much negotiating. Um, and actually, I know that the, the band was very closely involved with organising that show. Um, more than almost in any other exhibition they were involved. 
So, Excellent. So how did you get into this? What's your background uh, for you to... Because it's an extraordinary world. Um, I, I don't know anybody to... else in this. Do you, Cross? No, I don't know I anybody don't. else in no. this world. It's, it's, it's <laughs> a um, unique space. Hmm. So my co-founder, Francesca, was at the British Museum and I was managing a gallery here in Mayfair. And um, so we saw the same problem from two sides. She was doing the searching from the museum side and I was doing the searching from the collector side. And we were th- saying it's strange that this doesn't exist. But I always say that we were kind of stupid and naive and that's why we did it, because if we had been in the industry for much longer, we would have known how hard this was going to be. I think we can all say that of anybody that started a business. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, mm. I can relate to this 100%. Yeah, so that's how you started. Yes. But, you've, you, so, but you were both in that world, so to speak. Yes, well, we're both art historians by training, and we both, um, as, as art historians, I guess, you do learn to love art history and its objects, I guess, the way that Vasari did. And that's probably why we're so passionate about doing what we do. And what do you think about architects and architecture? <laughs> uh, bearing in mind your, your, your sort of visual background, is that part of your art history? Well, actually, the uh, Vasari book was about the lives of the artists, sculptors and architects. architects. So it was not just artists. Well, that leads us rather nicely, doesn't it, to yes. uh, Mustafa. Hi, Mustafa. Hey. Uh, now, you, you are an architect, are you, you're still, you're not yeah, practising yeah. architect, so, but you're, that's your training and your sure. background. And you worked for a rather um, famous architect, mm-hmm. didn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, up till 2015, I used to work at a firm here in London called Zahadid Architects. Yeah, um, and uh, just just explain who Zahadid is for anybody that doesn't know. Um, so Zahadid, um, who has passed away recently, she was quite a seminal figure in uh, uh, British architecture and worldwide architecture. Um, the office was known for, uh, let's call it non-standard architecture, is the <laughs> easiest way to describe it. So for people here in the UK, if you've been to the London Aquatic Stadium or the Serpentine Gallery Extension, um, you know, those were projects carried out uh, post-2010 at the office. Um, so, you know, she was known for really, uh, for the lack of a better description, pushing boundaries mm. in what's possible in architecture and construction. And Russ, I, I know that you sat next to dinner once, uh, to, uh, Saha. Now, she was famously known for being an incredibly intelligent lady, but yes. actually, well, actually a bit of a short temper. What did you find? Well, I found, <laughs> I mean, I was I was briefed in advance. It was, it was the, the first dinner the night before our very first London Technology Week, and she was there, and um, I knew a little bit about her, but not that much. And a couple of people came up to me and said, oh... She can be a bit difficult, a bit challenging. And, you know, she had a certain manner about her that, uh, you know, it was hard at times to have a conversation. Not warm and cuddly and friendly. No, she wasn't. <laughs> but at the same time, I, I, I finished that conversation and just thought, I met an amazing person. Mm-hmm. Really? You know, clever. a real genius, an incredible artist, a great visionary. And even though she had a, you know, difficult personality... Um, I felt truly honoured to have sat with her for mm. an hour and chatted with her about everything in her, particularly her background growing up in Baghdad and yeah. everything. Her Iraqi background was just incredible. Mm. And, and obviously an Iraqi woman in, in a, a really interesting world. Yes. Mm-hmm. She, she really did push the boundaries and people use that, that term too often. Mustafa, what did you learn while you were there? Did, did you really benefit from working there? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, uh, that office really sponsored or fostered a really strong creative tension. Mm. Um, and I think uh, her as a person and that office 
um, stood for a lot of great things in British creative practice. Um, you know, uh, I personally studied in the same school she studied in, which was actually just down the road, um, the Architectural Association in mm. London. Um, it's a school that by its nature pushes non-traditional ways of teaching architecture. And the office uh, very much so operated in a similar fashion that mm, this is what architecture is, this is what architecture can be, find your own place here, we're pushing an agenda, what do you want this to be about? And um, I worked specifically in something called the research group there. So in an office of four to 500, we were a team of five, a really close band of people. And we worked on two strains of things. Uh, one was, um, let's call it avant-garde architecture today, is very strongly concerned with what technology adds to design. Uh, so my day in and day out, most of the time involved things like coding, 3D printing and robotics. And the other side was we had to help create creative tools for the other architects in the business. And uh, the easiest way to describe this is architects are very visual people. They go with their gut and software tools are not designed for that way of work. So a big part of our, uh, what's the word, mandate was to design tools that intuitively guided our designers into producing what we produced in that office. And for me, that was probably the singular thing I took out of that office, which is how to design tools that intuitively aid people to do different things. And, and um, are you, do you find that, that actually, you know, some of the exhibitions you're curating and whatever, there's, there's, this, there's this huge sort of... I don't know, I suppose some of it is pulling apart, but some of it is, is merging. Somebody who's incredibly design orientated, very arty, whatever that means. Um, and then you've got the, the hard nosed binary thing to do with technology and how those two things meet. I, I think the joining of art and technology is a really exciting space. And it, all of the different forms of technology that are coming about at the moment from 3D printing and um, AI to mm. virtual reality and augmented reality. I think they're all straddling those two and really trying to find how those two speak to each other. Because mm. people are still seduced by the way things look, aren't they? And I, I'm, I'm surely the success of people like Apple is 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 having something in your hand that you appreciate and has status and looks cool. And, and that's still really important. Yeah, Mustafa was talking about that earlier, about moving to an office that was a bit softer and more <laughs> gentle so that the people in the office could feel that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think actually uh, uh, London is a great place for this. There's a lot of this uh, creative tension going on between uh, designers and technologists. Uh, there's this great person in, in this field. He's not based in London. He's called John Maeda. He, he releases a, port, a report every year these days called the Design and Tech Report. And um, it gives a really interesting survey how designers are now increasingly present in tech. You know, famously, the founders of Airbnb are mm -hmm. both architects. One of the founders of WeWork is an architect. And um, the way we like to think about it as designers is it goes beyond how things look. It's how people experience technology. And um, I think... A big reason why we moved from what we used to do to what we do today, me and my co-founders, we strong we felt very strongly that as designers we have something to say about this particular field of technology. And if we left it to the people who traditionally designed those technologies, that opinion would be lost. And um, there there is that kind of sometimes uh, 
sour taste that gets left in designer's mouth that like why was it done like this it's because you didn't try to contribute yeah. or you felt that you didn't have a voice in the conversation see you see i'm a trained designer as well that's my my, my background um, but that was pre-computers almost actually mm-hmm. um and it was always drummed into you form and function form and function it was those two things <laughs> so so form is really important sure. but of course something has to be able to function as well sure. and and in those days because we didn't have computers we used to draw we used to draw everything mm-hmm. um form took precedence actually over function quite often now I find it really interesting if you fast forward 30 years, actually functions quite often take priority over form. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think you're right. I think the pendulum needs to sw- swing back a little bit. Mm-hmm. I get incredibly frustrated when I can't work out how something works because it's just bad design. Yeah. Uh, you know, and famously when I was at art college, they used to say, if you go up to a door and you don't know whether to push or pull mm-hmm. it, that's, bad, that's just bad mm-hmm. design. It's not you being an idiot, mm-hmm. by the way. It's yeah. because it's not signaling to you what you should be doing there's, intuitively. There's a great quote from a designer called Bruce Mao, who said, uh, people don't notice design till it breaks. And mm. that's yeah, a great or it doesn't quote. work. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great but the, quote. This conversation for me is, is so exciting with the points that, that, that you're all making about London kind of having this mm creative tension and you know we've got the the tech london advocates creative tech group and you guys were the tla creative tech 50 last year and to me when i talk to our government leaders our mayor etc we talk about fintech and retail tech but i always say london is the world leader in creative tech Mm -hmm. because of what you are all doing so incredibly well. And to me, when I hear how you describe how you're approaching things or the way in which you're looking at London as part of this mix, I just think I get so excited about the future of this <laughs> city. And you know, as we see more of these collisions between the creative industries and the technology sector, to your point about art and technology, wow, this, this is so fantastic. You see, I went to Seattle over, over the, the Christmas break mm, a few months I ago. That. Oh, it's drab. I know everybody <laughs> says Seattle's amazing, but okay, it was really drab. And I was trying to like, I mean, obviously it was raining and it was cold, which didn't really help. But but for me, the reason why it's so drab is it's just on a grid system. Mm-hmm. The car is the thing that dominates mm-hmm. and therefore it's, you know, there's roads and it's, it's grid. And it's really boring and mm-hmm. it's boring yeah. to look at. Mm-hmm. And there's something it does to your soul when that happens, mm-hmm. as opposed to going to, say, let's St. Petersburg or, you know, Rome or all these beautiful, beautiful places. Um, it does something to your soul if it doesn't look good I'm, I'm, i think it does no, like, art is important but i also i'm you know, looking at the window here and yeah. you're an architect you would know this and appreciate this better than i that the mixture here between old and traditional but also new and modern works now i know people critique certain buildings and certain styles but you just walk around the streets here and i love paris i think paris is a sure. beautiful city mm. but that interconnection between ancient and modern is not there as much as it so is here. Yin and Yang here. sort of yes. castle that just goes on, right? Like yes. You said about Seattle. I don't particularly like New York for that reason. It's, mm-hmm. it's like London, but without the history. And yes. It isn't yeah. quite doing it the same way. And without the green space as yeah. well. For without that the green kind space. Of so they've got one the big green space that's been sort of centrally planned. And mm-hmm. the only bit that's not on the block system is the bit that the British designs. If I remember that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, yes. and if you go to Rome or Florence or Siena, it's mm. beautiful. Mm. But modern isn't integrated into yeah, it, is it? Yeah. It, it? It's almost a museum, which mm-hmm. is lovely, but, but but they haven't managed to integrate it in the yeah. Well, into I, I also um, was thinking about it the other day, and I think it's also, if you look at, for example, the city of London, you have organisations like the 
livery companies mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that have been around for 800 years next to uh, Finsbury Square and all of the big technology companies that are starting to happen there. It's kind of all very close together. So you can go to a livery dinner one moment and the next be in like a Microsoft space talking about mm-hmm. virtual reality. So uh, having that contrast, I think, yes. is it's beyond these cities, buildings. It's also in the ideas. I know, yeah. and I just to think of going out to China. I was in Shanghai last year and I've been to Beijing the year before. And I, I love China. I think it's an amazing country. But they've demolished a yes. lot of their mm-hmm. old buildings. Mm-hmm. And so it's new, modern, concrete, functional. But where's the history? Where's the soul? Where is the soul? And I think they're trying to go back and recapture a bit of that, particularly in Beijing, where they realize they've just gone too far. Shanghai has a little bit more of it, but that's something that the Chinese cities are missing, and I think they're going to regret that in the coming decades. But then again, there is um, nostalgia in the modern stuff, too. Like, if you look Mm. at an old iPod now... There is some sort, some type of nostalgia. So I think or my mother's mobile phone. I'll just yeah. let you have one yeah. of those. Or robots. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I think that's sort of true, but then do you think some things won't have that nostalgia? So I get the nostalgia for, for vinyl right now because I've sort of started mm. collecting that a little bit and stuff like that. I don't think we'll ever have the same nostalgia for CDs because <laughs> I don't think they're as physical as sort of thing. They're like a stopgap. Yep. Well, uh, but the other day I was thinking about the CD cases, you know, the ones yeah. that you had like the four on a covers. page and you would like take yeah. it across. Yeah. That material that it was made out of, I don't think we'll ever come across that material again. Yeah, so you, you could be, I'm just, I ja- can't James, see my head. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be really condescending here. It's, be, it's because of your age. It could so, be because so of my there age. Was things, that, there was off, things yeah. that Russ and I are roughly <laughs> the same age. The things that we were brought up with and I go, nobody, nobody is going to look at that because it's horrible, it's whatever. And now it's come back, it's really but there are weird. Like, there are things that don't come back and you just don't notice them. So again, yeah, I don't true, think true. the HS sure. yeah. no, yeah. no, no, no. Yeah, maybe you're right. But, Maybe you're right, but, the, the but there album, are things, aren't there, Ross? I mean, the thing that um, you know, I just my um, my middle son Chris just bought Fleetwood Mac Rumors, the, but the mm-hmm. vinyl, and yeah. and I was going through and thinking, yes, oh, I, yeah. I loved the artwork from yeah. albums, and I think could that be part of why that's come back? Yeah, because maybe. in the CDs or in the cassette tapes, too or small. remember those eight track tapes? I mean, it was just way too I think small. You might be older than me. Well, it's yeah. how people found bands <laughs> Sorry. Like back in the day from the artwork. It had to be that big and vivid because yeah. it's how you would go and find stuff in yeah. a record store. Exactly. People have told me. Uh, whereas on a CD, it's still like a convenient sort of yeah. easy to ship. Yeah. 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 But it's really weird because there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason for what yeah. does actually end up being you know, it now is collectible and you, and you yeah. go, that's collectible, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a, it's really interesting. I'm not mm. quite sure why things become collectible and other things don't. Uh, very interesting. So so um, going back to you, Mustafa, um, you, you've had that sort of art background training, mm-hmm. art design background training, mm-hmm. um, as, as, uh, as well as us two here. Um, has, that, has that affected your ability to then go into this new you know, company that you're doing and the approach that you take mm-hmm. um, and, and you're into sort of robotics now. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think it has influenced the way you think about it? Uh, yeah, 100%. Um, so actually it's, it's here great hearing about Vastari's story because the way I look at what they're doing is they're making a world that I know is for a very long time opaque, more accessible. And uh, we think about what we do at Automata in a very similar fashion. It's that we're bringing robotics automation to a wider uh, user group. And um, people think of industrial robotics as this high-tech equipment, uh, cutting edge that builds cars. And to a big extent, that's kind of true. These big iron machines that build your cars day in and day out. 
Uh, but actually, they're not cutting edge. They're quite old school, really hard, really mm. um, uh, difficult to employ pieces of technology. And these days, more and more people are looking to automate what they do for the simple reason that there's a lot of jobs that people don't want to do anymore, and but companies still need to do or manufacturers still need to do. And there's been a kind of revolution in robotics called collaborative robotics, which I think is a great name because it, it is what it sounds like. It's robots that work alongside human operators. This is cobots. Cobots. Okay. Is I just robot. read about this yesterday. Yeah. Yes. So uh, we work on cobots, okay. and uh, cobots are designed to be more accessible and mm -hmm. easier to use. And when me and my co-founder uh, started the company, we saw that as a design problem. Like, how do you make these things easier to use? A big part of it is making that uh, object friendlier, easier to look at and handle, not really design, but just it's a better experience. A big part of it is about the software experience, making that really easy to program that a, a layman at robotics can easily set it up. But the third part is a quintessential UX problem, which is uh, a big part of it. Let's say I'm a cosmetics manufacturer in the UK and my production is inherently seasonal which means I need to retask my robot quite often. That That is a deployment problem. And we see so it is a, that to make that more efficient so that, so that you haven't got downtime? It's yes. Then redeployed yes. to do something else? Exactly. So okay. if, you, if you buy a 100K machine that sits in a corner and cannot be retasked, it just works three months a year. It's a terrible expenditure for that business. But if it's a product that they can move around and feel confident moving around and redeploying and reprogramming, then it it's, it's a no-brainer to them, right? Yeah, and yeah. It allows them to not take on this idea of contract staff that they bring in one day and let go the other day, but it's actually to put their employees on valuable work and let the robots take care of work that's in Sit in the corner and just chalk, you know, do its away. thing. Yeah. yeah. So, so you've set up, um, you've got a, pro a flagship, flagship product, I know, um, called Eva. Yeah. Eva. And uh, Eva is elegant, simple and affordable. Uh, and it is a robot arm. Uh, built for professionals, it's not. Mm -hmm. It's not. A, it's not a consumer product, mm -hmm. um, and and that's exactly what it does. It, it costs under five thousand mm pounds. -hmm. You can set it up in fifteen minutes, mm -hmm. and you literally can then program it to do those things that you want it to do in yes. the corner of your workshop or factory. Yes. So uh, yeah, Eva. Uh, we we found that uh, giving it a name has helped people interact with the product a lot more. It's it's hard to describe, but it really works. Uh, even the most hard-nosed of manufacturers smiles when he refers or she refers to it as an Eva uh, and refers to it as a she. Uh, but um, over the last few years, we've been working on uh, making this robot possible. Uh, so to give you the, the low and dirty, uh, basically the robotics market is held hostage to the gearbox industry. And most people wouldn't think of that. And it was something we had to find out the hard way. So we've built a really fantastic team over the last two years where we've built a, a full stack hardware team and a full stack software team working alongside each other to put out this product at a price point that is, you know, a fourth of what else is out there in the market. So, so what do you mean by being held hostage? So Just don't get yourself into legal problems here. Say allegedly a lot. But yeah. what, what, what do you mean exactly? So... Um, Basically, there's a couple of, literally a couple of manufacturers who make a kind of gearbox that the collaborative robot industries depend Need. on. Yeah. And uh, they cannot control their technology price points because 
they're what's called horizontally horizontally integrated businesses. Mm-hmm. So their bill of materials is controlled by things they buy off the shelf. Yeah. Uh, as an attitude, we came in and said, let's try and do as much as possible as we can on the hardware stack. And uh, that's something we definitely came in as designers. And, you know, a designer's attitude is move fast, break fast, prototype fast. And we've definitely started the company on that ethic. And uh, as we hired these great engineers, we kind of reached this happy middle ground where we've convinced them of that. Like they don't traditionally move that fast. But in the same time, we now break less and make less <coughs> assumptions because we have these great engineers yeah. on board. And now you've got greater control as well, which is, which is you know, which yes. is a great thing to have. Yes. Um, so, so Eva, mm-hmm. people do like being... They do like you personalizing. They do. do, do, do they you do. Think? Well, it makes it a bit more real. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, the Lamborghini factory in Italy, I went to visit it, and they have a robot called Roberto yeah. who goes around on a track. So. Of course, of course. Yeah, so that's um, something we've seen quite a lot. Yeah. So Eva is designed uh, to be safe, obviously, for human interaction, because um, she can detect collisions, mm-hmm. uh, point, you know, dangers. She, there's no pinch points, mm-hmm. um, very lightweight in design, so, mm-hmm. so it's safer. Mm-hmm. Um, and this feels like a person, doesn't it? <laughs> That's yeah. what you're trying to do, really. Sure, yeah. So mm. you want this experience to be as frictionless as possible. Yeah. So to do that, you know, whether it was making the robot as sensor-rich as possible, so it's constantly aware of what it's doing. It's constantly aware if there's um, a collision or it's hitting something or someone. Someone. Or <laughs> on the other side, uh, making the software experience as frictionless. And actually, software is the core future of robotics, right? Like at some point, hardware is hardware and people are going to know how to do it. But making that software experience ex- incredibly frictionless is a big challenge in robotics. And there's many branches to where this can go. So, so your your idea, in essence, is we've got this this sort of um, this robotic arm. We've mm-hmm. done all the thinking for you. There's mm-hmm. some software underneath there. Mm-hmm. You need to know what it is you want to do in your factory and whatever. And actually, mm-hmm. this this allows your platform uh, to to spring off and and start from, mm-hmm. so that you don't have to build something bespoke. Uh, in essence, what what you can do is take that on, and then you can, you know, commoditize or, or, or sorry, um, s- sort of, you know, uh, you know, change it around the outside. But essentially, there's a core thing that you've already, um, you know, you've done all that work for them. Yes. Yeah, so in the last year, we've been and uh, moving forward, we've been working with some great customers here in the UK, where it's basically, um, yes, we basically help them deploy robotic solutions in their businesses. And a lot of the times, like you said, it, it replaces traditional automation where they have to go out and spec a solution. We just say, no, all you need is this EVA with this attachment. And yeah. look, I'm going to come at 11 and will be done before lunch and it's going to be up and running. Wow. And, and that's, the, that's the kind of And what sort of things is EVA doing? Give us a couple of examples. Um, so the bread, the bread and butter of robotics is something called pick and place. Uh, basically taking something from one place, putting it somewhere else. So... You can think of it as a product coming on a conveyor belt and the robot picks it up and puts it in a box. Um, another big one we're seeing is testing. So anything that gets sold that's physical needs to be tested. And you'd be shocked at how people do it right now. So things like a live hinge or the hinge, is like there's a person sitting there pressing a button 50,000 times to check if the button breaks. That can be done by a robot fairly easily. Um, <laughs> that's somebody's job. 
that is someone's job. You see, that for me is what robotics is about. And everybody's exactly. scaremongering a lot, aren't they, Russ? But that about, job won't be around for much longer. Good, so. because that person can go and do something much. They, you know, they're not going to lose their job. They're going to be deployed in something better. No, and I, and I hope we, we look at how do we retrain, reskill, yeah, exactly. upskill people like that yes. so that... You know, they're they not can do something that. more meaningful, yeah. 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 Uh, of, of course, of which they are capable of yes, doing. Yeah. Of yeah. Some of the greatest experiences we've had is like meeting someone whose previous job was either that or building a machine that did that, which is a really disenfranchising feeling for the employee. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then watching him, in this case, learn to use an EVA and then become responsible for EVA in the business. Yeah, what a nicer thing that is. Yeah. Much more exciting to talk about when you go down the pub. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mustafa, thank you for that. We're just going to have a little break because um, we've got loads and loads to talk to uh, James Gupt- Gupta about. So um, just have a break for a minute and then we'll, we'll, we'll be back. And uh, you're listening to the Tech Talk Show and we're back in the studio. Uh, we've been talking to Bernadine uh, about Vistari, very interesting, uh, and also Mustafa about uh, automata and robotics and architecture and all sorts of things, really. Um, James, you've been left a little bit. Sorry about that, James no, Gupta of um, SignUp. Now, um, I-, I just wanted to ask Russ, were you good at school? Were you, you I know, was. Were you a bit of an academic? Were you, were you well-behaved? Um, yes, Mostly. except for my junior high years, I was really nasty. Really? Yeah. Nasty, can't but up until you that point, nasty. oh, I was. I really? had, yes, okay. those adolescent years. But, mm. but before that and after that, I was a, a very good student. And and how do you learn? Are you are you very good at cramming and then you know spewing out those statistics, or, or are you somebody who retains stuff? I'm pretty good at retaining things. I, I mean, I would cram right before an exam. Um, you know, I'd have my little sheets that I would just try and memorize them in my head. But I, I always enjoyed learning. I still enjoy learning. I'm always fascinated by new things, new ideas, new information. So that was never an issue for me. I wasn't, I struggled with writing a bit, and especially creative writing, but I was, I, I love learning. Yeah, I love learning, but I, I'm, I'm much better when it's like short terms. So I can cram mm-hmm. and then, you know, you know, then sort of spew it all out. See, I panic. Uh, you know, if I have to, have to cram it all in over 24 hours, I panic. Uh, so not, it not, starts not. days, weeks before. Yeah. Well, research here apparently shows that we forget a staggering 40% of what we learn after just 20 minutes. I believe it. <laughs> I had a my, in high school, my communications teacher always said, you hear something after the third time you've heard it, and you remember it after the seventh time. I'm not, even sure, I'm not even sure that's true, but um, <laughs> and apparently it increases to um, you forget eighty percent after a week. Jesus. That's terrible, isn't it? That's terrible. Um, and you're here to rescue us on that, aren't you, James? I'm happy to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> slightly. Um, um, so, so you've designed um, SignUp, which is an online study platform and a sort of revision tool as well, mm-hmm. um, and it allows teachers and students to create these sort of multiple choice quizzes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and just explain the reason for doing that. There's lots of reasons, isn't there, and benefits to this? There is. So I'll, I'll give you our reasons for starting it. So mm. we were university students at the time, uh, studying medicine at the University of Leeds. And medicine, five-year course, lots to learn, lots to remember Loads. in a short space of time. Yep. Some of it is sort of the difficulty is getting your head around it and concepts and stuff like that. But a lot of it is just you need the terminology, like your vocabulary basically doubles in the first years of medical school. And what the vast majority of students do, whether they're in medicine, whether they're in school, whether they're not students at all and they're on the job, is cramming. And a lot of people get through on cramming. The problem is then 
the next year you've got to remember all of the stuff that you've forgotten plus all of this year's stuff and definitely on a five-year course at a certain point you get people who are getting a's b's c's and then suddenly they just fall off the cliff because they've not got that stable foundation of knowledge that's there you're meant to be building on that knowledge each year so, so what you're suggesting then is that people are learning it and forgetting it that, that as they're moving through their course, there's more and more and more and more they have to remember. Yeah, and it actually becomes sort of too difficult. Hit yeah. a brick wall yeah. and maybe you hit that brick wall on your course or maybe you hit it in your job. And obviously that's got severe consequences in medicine, but it's got consequences wherever you are because suddenly you realise you've not made the most out of that study time that you should have been doing in university. So I've only been out of university for six months, uh, but already I'm starting to sort of think, God, I had all of this time where I had access to libraries and books mm-hmm. and I had this status as a student where I didn't need to work and I could have just got on with learning. And we're trying to help with that, essentially. So we try and break down studying into smaller chunks um, that sort of works with the way that your brain works. The way your brain works is you can only store about seven things in your short-term memory at any given time, but your long-term memory is basically infinite. So if you can sort of chunk up your learning into small chunks and repeat it more often and give your brain other signals that what you're learning is really important, and it's got to be really important because otherwise why would you be doing it so often then you can have a sort of form of knowledge that lets you apply it to new situations and uh, lets you retain it for a lot longer see you were right you were right russ about how many you know if you do it seven times or more (laughs) then you remember it you remember it um and it seems bizarre isn't it that that we've got google and Mm. and all sorts of other things we've got we've got our phones and and um, people saying we're, we're, we're teaching children things which actually they can just look it up why do we need to bother but you know we're still doing that but that aside there is still a lot to learn and and without that you know that you haven't really got the foundation for, sometimes mm. for the world of work or whatever it is you're going to go into so so studying is not going to go away no matter how technologically advanced we, we become is it no and, and you wouldn't necessarily want it to um so, so your, your point was essentially, yeah, we've got access to all the information and yeah. therefore maybe we need to sort of refocus the way that we structure exams and stuff like that. Maybe it's not as important, uh, I give a medical example, to know the exact dosages of any drug yeah. at any time because you would probably want to double check on your phone anyway. Or the capital of a country. Yeah, and stuff like that. But then it's, it's, I mean, flippant, but you know. It's, if, if it's you... sort of interesting to have some of that information yeah, yeah. Uh, to hand. And I think there's some sort of like basic fundamentals, again, that you need in order to have an intelligent conversation and or debate or something about these topics. Uh, so I found like some of the, the talk, talk about art sort of really fascinating. Now, I didn't have much of an interest in art when I was sort of going through school, but now I'm finding myself more and more fascinated by it. And I think stories help with that. So um, Van Gogh, I think knowing about his background and his story really brings some of his artwork to life. So there's little bits of facts that I know about Van Gogh and stuff like that, but that's helping me on the more experiential Side and, of it. and does your approach take into account how people have a preferred way to learn? I know some people are much more visual. I know one of my sons is very much on audio. Mm-hmm. You know, he you, you, he can listen to things and retain it, but won't necessarily recall it visually. So do you look at those different ways in which we have a preference uh, no, for how to learn? This is one of those things that really just doesn't go away. There are different learning styles and there are things that people prefer but there's actually no evidence to suggest that you should describe that learning okay. style to that person. Okay. Uh, in fact, you're probably best uh, having materials presented in a range of formats. Mm-hmm. And just because you prefer podcasts, it doesn't mean that you learn better on them, other than the fact that they fit in with your mm. sort of lifestyle a lot better yes. and stuff like that. So no signups, um, it's an online platform. What we do to personalize it is we look at how everyone's doing individually. Uh, we look at what topics they're struggling with, how they're doing compared to other people in their cohort. And we send them the top 10 or 20 pieces of information and questions that 
they need to practice that day. So you can sort of predict when people are going to start forgetting things. We'll resend it to them. Okay, they've answered that right. Can they answer it right next week, next month? And by the time you've answered something a day, a week, and then a month apart, it's probably in your long-term memory by that point. So so um, I've got lovely research, as you say. So they say it's the world's most intelligent study tool. And what it does is help users learn more efficiently by using spaced repetition algorithms. Mm-hmm. And that uh, is a technique that prioritises the questions you see regularly. And mm-hmm. that's what you're saying gets lodged into your long-term memory. Once it's there, it's there. Yeah. yeah. And then just another slightly different way of attacking that is... If you're doing sort of like weightlifting, for example, you're not going to get stronger by lifting the same weight each time. You, know, you get stronger by sort of pushing your body to the maximum of what it can do each time. Uh, the same thing, just repeating a piece of information every day actually doesn't help you learn it because you're telling your brain, look, I can always do this a day apart. What you need to do is challenge yourself each time to remember it for longer. It puts your brain under mental stress, which it doesn't like. And its response to that is to literally build new nerve fibers to help you recall that information more reliably in the future. Wow, I could have and, done and those that. changes are visible on an MRI scan. <laughs> See, I, I would have got all my exams if you'd have been around then. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> I was literally probably not. But, but the way people learn is fascinating, isn't it? And retain. It is. And, and I was just sitting here thinking one of the things as, as I'm out and about hearing a lot about is this whole notion of lifelong learning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is going to take a, a much more important focus in our society. Yeah, just directly to what you were saying before that if. Uh, this guy's company takes off, you're going to need to retrain a lot of people. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so how do we, incur- and, and I think, you know, and this came up actually House of Lords Select Committee a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago. How, you know, how are we going to prepare society for this? How do we make sure that we're going to have the right channels available? And I've said online is going to be the channel mm-hmm. because people can dip in and out. And yep. given what you do at, at SignUp, I think this sounds like a really excellent tool that we can introduce to all people of all ages to say, look, at some point in your career, multiple times in your career, you're going to need to go back and learn. You're yep. going to need to go back and, and re-educate yourself. And something like this sounds ideal. But surely, James, this this could be for leisure as well. I mean, I yep. know you're, you're a very specific market here, which is absolutely right. But if we're talking about art and architecture and learning mm. things, you know, it could be prompting you to remember certain mm. things um, in, sort of in your world, couldn't it? Uh, and I often think that one of the reasons that I'm very inspired by what I do is to help people understand each other. And I think the more they learn for, about each other and mm-hmm. each other's stories, they'll there's more compassion there. Sure. So if you can build that. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> I'll, I'll try and build more compassion into it. There's, there's, there's two interesting things that we're, that we're working on at the moment. And one goes to your point on lifelong learning. So we were doing this with sort of mostly uh, medics and, and nurses and stuff like that. And then we, we were approached by my taxi in Ireland and they wanted to use it to train a new generation of taxi drivers because people are retiring quicker than they can get them through the licensing exam. Yes. And the licensing exam is actually pretty tough. Like you've got to know what the quickest route from this hospital to that school is at this time of day and all the regulation requirements. And it's got a 10% pass rate first time. Wow. With using sign up, we've got it to 90%. Wow. Really? And, and people really like using it. So we've got... People who are currently um, not in education, employment or training, my taxis uh, paying for them to use the app, paying for them to sort of register, to get their exam fees done. And some people have taken about 50,000 questions each over the course of about three months. We've got amazing feedback from them. They're going in and passing first time and then they're getting a job like within three months. And when we didn't necessarily see that one coming, like we built sign up for, for students and we thought they would definitely use it. The idea of someone who's like from a generation where mobile learning is, mm-hmm. is less of a thing mm-hmm. would actually 
not just use it, but really enjoy using it. Uh, it's, it's been really great. And does it teach them how to have um, uh, an extreme political opinion that they talk to you about for 10 minutes? No, that comes later. That's phase two. <laughs> built that into the training at all. Yeah, yeah. How, it, how, it's part of the selection. How, uh, how big is your company and um, how are you doing in terms of raising money and things like that? Well, there must be a lot of interest in what you're doing. There, there is. And we're getting it from a couple of different sectors, uh, which is really interesting. So I just throw out there, we're, we're looking at doing something for dementia care as well to strengthen right. people's memory there. So we're, we've been at it for about three years, but my colleague and I graduated six months ago. Okay. So we've been full-time office and, and two full-time staff for about six months now. And we're at a stage where we're, we're sort of figuring out which different industries we can use it in. And we're speaking to some public sector organisations, we're speaking to schools, we're speaking to private sector, we're speaking to healthcare. And we're just sort of seeing where the different mm. use cases are and building a couple of different flavours for all of those. So it's, it's really interesting time. Because that is a problem, Russ, when you have, we, we quite often see entrepreneurs uh, like James here and, and they've, they've, got this, they've got the solution to so many things. Mm, yes. how, how do you focus when you're, when you're a new company and trying to work out the best avenue to go in the first instance? Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's one of the biggest challenges, mm-hmm. especially, mm. you know, people like James and all of you here, you know, you have big visions, you have big ideas, but the more successful ones, you know, somehow figure out, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that and then I'm going to do that. Um, But at the same time, there has to be a degree of flexibility. And so if somebody's struggling with their, you know, their, their, their viable product, being able to shift gears and say, "Mm, that's just not working. Mm. And I think where some entrepreneurs fail is they get too wedded to one idea. Whereas Mm. if they just, pivoted in another direction they might have more success but how do you choose which sector i mean would it be um you know in james instance the one that would be monetized most easily quickest because then that will allow you to do other things or i think i think it's down to 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 your preference i mean obviously there will be some people out there who will want to grow the business make money and keep reinvesting in Mm -hmm. it but others might say, look, I think the longer term potential for this idea, which may not make as much money in the near term, but down the line is the better way yeah. forward. Yeah. But if the yeah, end, then you have to say, do I have the funding to keep it going for yeah. three years or five years? Do I have good investors behind me? Those are all of the trade offs that I mm. see people. I, I think that's with. a really good question and a really good answer to it. it it's a sort of not dilemma because it's a good problem to have. But what we've been focusing on the moment it is, look, how much funding have we got? How much more comp- of the company do we want to give away? We're taking on contracts that sort of like uh, have an obvious sort of short-term value add at the moment. And then we're looking into things like the Dementia Project and other things that can go longer term. But we'd like to be sort of, you know, taking in enough money to make sure that we can fuel those things sustainably. Uh, And that comes down to the entrepreneurs. Some people would like to use sign-up in an exclusively healthcare setting and they'd take a larger chunk of investment or go through the NHS route and stuff like that. Not necessarily a right or wrong answer. And you have to look after yourself. You have to pay yourself Absolutely. a salary. You have to put yeah, food yeah, on the yeah. table. You have yeah. to pay your, your rent or your mortgage. Mm. And so yeah. those are all things that get you factored have to take in as well. Account. Well, um, James, there's so many yeah. uh, applications for that that I can see. I mean, really good luck with it, don't you? Yes, think? Thanks so much. James, yeah. Really great. Um, and I wish I could have had that when I was doing my exams, <laughs> as we said before. Um, but, but, I mean, the results that you're getting, that's the thing that speaks volumes when you actually get the results. It's yes. really cool to see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, very good indeed. So if you want to find out about SignUp, it's um, SignUp, which is S-Y-N-A-P dot ack dot ac so sign up dot ack you can find that on our website anyway um mustafa el syed um uh, automata so get automata.com if you want to if you want to get a eva in your sure or automata.tech 
Automata.tech. Yes. Okay. Um, but uh, if you if you if you really fancy an Eva mm-hmm. and you want uh, a little lever in the in the corner mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, it could solve real problems for you if you're if you're looking at repetitive tasks and automation and think that having robotics is out of your league. This puts it in everybody's league almost, doesn't it? Yes. In business. Yeah. Exactly. Good. So again, that'll be on our website and um, and the world of art. I learned loads today. I didn't. I, I suppose I hadn't really thought about. You know how you get an exhibition together. Probably mm. didn't even think about it. You just wander around and you just think it's all appeared. So if um, if you want to have a look at that, and I'm I'm going to go on there particularly. So that's vastari.com because I want to fa- find out where all these amazing exhibitions are around the world <laughs> for the next fifteen years, which you've logged apparently. Um, so um, Bernadine, thank you very much for that, and good luck with it. Um, your ambitions just to take over the world. I think um, <laughs> I really like something that Mustafa said about. Um, the fighting the opacity that exists. I think that in all senses, we want to create transparency. So more emerging markets can get involved, more new players. And it's not just the old guard that maintains control of the systems. I can see you um, easily disrupting that because I don't think there's a competitor at all, do you? It doesn't feel like it. No. Yeah, no, good place no, to be. Um, so thank you very much, Russ. Uh, Russ Shaw of Global Tech Advocates. Thanks, Just very quickly, anything you're looking forward to in March and April coming along? Uh, March, we're off to Colombia to launch Tech Bogota Advocates. And As then I call in it April... Tech Bog, which you won't let me, you <laughs> no, won't let no, me no, call no. it that. <laughs> and then April, 19th of April, TLA 5. It's the five-year right. anniversary. We're all excited yes, about that. Yes, I hope it's etched in your diary. Uh, and for the new advocates is. in the room, I hope you're going to be there. It'll be quite a... We're going to look at the future of tech 2023. So I might have to tap into some of you to participate. There's been some great examples on the Tech Talk show that we could could talk about. So if you don't know about that, you need to go on to Tech, uh, sorry, London Tech Advocates. No, Tech London Advocates. Oh, I was going to run the wrong way. (laughs) Tech London Advocates, look on the events page and it'll be on there and you can book through that, can't you? Yes, Okay, that's great. So thank you all very much for joining me. You've been listening to the Tech Talk show. Um, If you want to find out, uh, well, if you want to Twitter us, tweet us whatever it's called um please do that through at at tech talk show uk particularly if you know of any amazing people in the tech world uh, who we should be featuring get in touch um and you can listen to any of our hundreds of podcasts on techtalkshow.co.uk and that will include links to all these amazing people we have in the room today and their companies so i wish you a good week bye now <laughs>